it is not appropriate in most Americans' minds to question the medical community. Mm. And because of that, we have sent a signal to the market that we are not price sensitive, that we are not quality sensitive. Welcome to Thinking on Lincoln, the podcast on 13th and Lincoln, talking about things on 23rd and Lincoln. I'm your host, Curtis Sheldon, joined with my co-host, Ryan Haney, and our producer, Lindsay McSparren. Ryan, how do you feel after this weekend? I'm afraid to ask a little bit, but... Uh, well, I've been doom scrolling, scrolling Twitter all day, so uh, hopefully by the time this airs on Friday, this will all be resolved, but we are, of course, of course recording this on Monday after Lincoln Riley uh, left OU for uh, uh, sunnier... Mm-hmm beachier pastures <laughs> so um you know screw that guy and, <laughs> and we're, we're moving on i guess so yeah. oh man well so today we have i guess the second episode in mm-hmm. what is at least a two-part episode or a two-part series rather mm-hmm. on healthcare and free markets right yeah we had a uh, jay kimpton on this time Father of our famed intern, George Kempton. Exactly, yeah. Um, talk about kind of the, the second part of, we had Dr. Smith on last, or two weeks ago, I suppose, talking about the uh, the seller side, if you will, the physician side of healthcare. Right. And Jay Kempton, who's running a third-party administrator, is talking about the healthcare industry from kind of the buyer side, yeah. if you will. And I encourage listeners, if you haven't already heard the interview with uh, Dr. Smith, go back and listen to that one. I think it will probably, yeah, I think... I think that that would be the order I would probably recommend they listen to. Uh, yeah, end. I think that's... So kind of get the feel for what... I think it's easier to grasp free markets in healthcare from that supply side. Mm-hmm. And then once you have that frame of reference, then I think that this interview with uh, Jay was was really awesome. Yeah, I mean, I, I genuinely learned a lot from these last two episodes. As a, as a young, middling 20-something-year-old who really hasn't had to deal with insurance things like this before, it's, it's fascinating. I learned a lot, and I'm a middling 35-year-old okay. who has had to navigate three pregnancies, not myself, but you know our family mm. and a couple of ER visits and that sort of stuff, but nothing too crazy. Somewhat unrelated, but do you refer to yourselves, you and Jacqueline, as we are pregnant or is she pregnant? I probably went back and forth with both. Okay. But I don't, I don't fault people. You know, they're... I think that's like probably a hyper-feminist thing to say, you know, well, you're not pregnant. Of yeah. course not. Although right. nowadays, you know, men can be pregnant, so. I, that's true. God, good <laughs> Lord. Yeah. I suppose I'll figure out what I'm, I'm, I'm probably not going to say we, and it's not like I don't have a strong opinion. I don't opinion what about, say. Don't have a strong opinion about it. It's just, I just, I, I feel disingenuous. Like I'm not, I'm just here. Do you have strong opinions on, on people who say like, we won the game on Saturday? No. Not okay. <laughs> so not so much that, but. But we being pregnant is right. off limits. And but here's the thing. Okay. The eighth man is real. The twelfth man is real. No, I said the eighth man. The twelfth man is real. I don't know where the eighth man came from. But the twelfth man's real. Apparently in football, you know. The sixth man's real. Well, yeah, but do you only do you only say it when you went to the game, or do you say it when you watch it on TV too? That's a good point. <laughs> I, mean, like, I, I get it if you're <laughs> at the game. Point. Um, I know. I, I bought stuff. I contributed to the athletics department and/or the. 
whatever the organization. Franchise. Yeah, no doubt. Well, you know, that was always, uh, of course, now the old ball coach is coming back to coach our, our bowl game, it sounds like. But that was my favorite thing about Bob Stoops on Fox was that he just could not get over, like, the blatant homerism, constantly saying we and us with respect to OU. It just cracked me up. <laughs> it's yeah. like you're, you're really not supposed to do that on TV, Bob. <laughs> right, yeah, just destroying your fan base. I mean, I guess I get it, but I don't know. I feel like with how much time people spend – consuming that i think it's i think it's justified to a degree now i don't know i don't want to get into other ridiculous fan behaviors but i'd say that of all things that fans do seems okay with me yeah well this has been fun thank you curtis we haven't talked about football in a while so thank Mm -hmm. you for bringing this up i appreciate that um why don't we uh why don't we why don't we skip to the interview all right enjoy Today by Jay Kempton of the Kempton Group. Jay, happy yeah. to have you here. We're glad to be here. Yep. So we usually want to just give our guests a chance to kind of introduce themselves, kind of explain to us what the Kempton Group is, how you got to to where you are now, and what the idea behind the Free Market Medical Association really was. Sure. Yeah. So um, I'm the president and owner of uh, the Kempton Group, second generation um, company. Um, I took over the CEO position in, in 03 after my dad um, passed away. I started working at the company. If you don't count, um, when I was uh, 15, 16 years old working in the file room. We'll, we'll count it. All right, we'll count that then. <laughs> uh, started work full-time right out of, out of college at Oklahoma State in 92. Uh, but what the Kempton Group does, the family business, if you will, is we are uh, what's known as a third-party benefits administration company. Uh, or a third-party administrator, a TPA for short. And what we do is we exclusively work with uh, employers, generally employers that are going to be, you know, around 100 employees or larger that have chosen to not go the direction of traditional insurance when providing um, health benefits to their employees. They viewed, uh, you know, writing a big premium check to, you know, Aetna or Blue Cross as a as a big waste of money, and they felt like they could they could do it better if instead of sending that money out to a third party company, if they would just keep those dollars in house and then hire an administration company to get uh, receive the medical claims and prescription claims from their employees, process those medical claims. Uh, and then um, pay the medical bills out of the employer's dollars, directly out of their dollars, and then just pay us uh, just essentially a clerical fee or a management fee to help them manage their own health plan. And and that's really what what we've done now for almost 50 years. Okay. So do you – sorry, go ahead, Ryan. No, that's just really interesting because I would not have guessed that it's been around for 50 years because when I was entering the labor market – it I remember Chesapeake doing this, and it was like it. It was that was like the only company I knew of that that did this. So, like frankly, I'm a little surprised to learn that this has been going on for 50 years. So, yes, yeah, self insurance has has been um, really uh, popular. It's it gains in popularity really every year. Where now I think the statistics are are close to 60 percent of all employees in the country that have employee benefits that are not through some sort of a public plan, about 60% of all employees get their their benefits, their health benefits, if you will, from a self-insured plan. Um, 
it, I think where, where you're coming from, Ryan, is, is going back 10, 15, 20 years, it was reserved for larger and larger employers. I mean, it used to be, I can remember when I started, if you were under 500 employees and you were self-insured, you were kind of right on the cutting edge. You were like almost crazy that, that you know, my gosh, that's so aggressive that, you know, you're not big enough to be self-insured mm-hmm. or to be partially self-insured. Um, but through different advancements, through um, reinsurance or having catastrophic uh, type of coverage to help level out uh, those large catastrophic claims, uh, self-insurance has become more accessible to smaller and smaller employers. I think the smallest, em- uh, smallest employer that we do business with uh, is actually, uh, ironically enough, is Surgery Center of Oklahoma. Um, they're at, uh, right at 30 employees, and they've been, they've been a self-insured for probably a decade before I ever met uh, Dr. Keith Smith. And then after we met, um, we, we ended up doing business together where we administer their plan. But, uh, but yeah, they've been successful at 30 employees for a long time. What What is it about, what is it that's making it easier? Or is it easier? Is it just more people know about it? What is it that's allowing these smaller businesses to, to do this, this type of uh, self-insuring? Yeah, um, when you know, I, I mentioned a minute ago when we were talking about self-insurance, I actually corrected uh, all of us and said, you know, it's actually partially self-insurance because you're you're not like if you have a five million dollar claim, that employer is not having to come up with five million bucks. Okay, they do buy a type of reinsurance uh, or catastrophic business insurance that protects the employer's health plan from medical claims in excess of a, of a given threshold. Uh, so you might be a, a smaller employer, let's say you have 70 employees, you might buy a reinsurance policy from an insurance company uh, that anytime you have a, a, a claimant in your plan that has claims in excess of say $25,000 in a year, that this insurance company will then come in and, and reimburse the employer for amounts claim amounts over the 25000 And so that's given employers a much more budgetable um, uh, funding requirement or, or, a, or a more reasonable risk uh, threshold for them. So it becomes more accessible to smaller employers. But I think the important thing, though, for, for the podcast here and, and for your listeners is, is that the, the, the motivation behind this is healthcare costs have continued to go up and up and up. Employers have, have figured out that if if they're able to save a dollar through, we were talking before the podcast started about you know wellness and, and taking good care of yourself. If you can instill a culture of wellness within your employer, uh, and your employees have fewer claims, well, if you're you know if you're with a big insurance company, then you have less claims. Then you're just making the insurance company more profitable. While if you're partially self-insured and the same set of facts occur and you have employees that are very, very healthy, a dollar that is not spent on healthcare in a partially self-insured plan is a dollar that stays right there at the employer to help pay salaries or expand the business or, or cause the business to be more profitable. It's a, a dollar saved is a dollar that stays right there at the employer. Hmm. Do you find that a lot of the businesses you work with that are partially self-funded also do like profit sharing plans and things like that to incentivize folks to to do everything they can to be healthy um yeah we we see a lot of uh, of our 
well, all of our clients actually do incentivize their employees and their dependents, uh, the, the spouses and the, and the kiddos, if, uh, if they're needing to have a voluntary and elective medical procedure, they definitely provide incentives uh, through the Kempton Group that if, you know, if they choose to have a, a tonsillectomy done at Surgery Center of Oklahoma because it's so much less money than having it done at the big hospital, then the employer is waiving the patient's deductible or co-insurance and essentially sharing that savings right there at the point of sale with the employee. So that provides a great incentive. But, mm. but back, um, I think your comment really had more to do with, uh, like if it was a uh, maybe an employee, partially employee-owned company like an ESOP, uh, we do we see a lot of, of you know employer um, uh, stock program type employers where they're actually owned by the employees. A, a large portion of those are self-insured for exactly the reason you're saying is the employees definitely then have a direct stake in the profitability of the employer and anything that they can do to help drive the cost down um, benefits the employer and then indirectly benefits the employee. Okay, so does. Would someone want to choose this TPA model, this third-party administrative model, more? Did the cost savings come more from the flexibility, or is it just do each employer kind of create their own individual plan and you help kind of walk them through that and administer that plan, or is it kind of a a pretty standard actual health plan that most of these companies use and then you run that plan? Yeah, that's a great question, and that's kind of a question that's, that's kind of a softball, so thanks, man. Uh, thanks for sending that my way. Um you know, as self-insurance has become more and more popular and more accessible, the, the big insurance companies have gotten into the self-insured business. Now, they couldn't be associated with, you know, small com- Oklahoma companies like the Kempton Group. So uh, they don't even, when, when an insurance company is acting as a third-party administrator, they, they don't choose to call themselves a TPA. They have a new name for themselves. They, they call themselves an administrative services only uh, organization. So if, if uh, you know, the big insurance companies, if they're acting as a, as a administrator for a self-funded plan, they're, they're, that's known as an ASO arrangement. Um, and if you are with a big insurance company and you're self-insured, then you probably are getting a standard type benefit plan that's, you know, up on the shelf, uh, except that it's your risk. You know, the employer's taking on the risk because you're self-insured. But as far as actually being able to uh, design a plan that makes sense for your company, um, there's not a lot of flexibility. Um, but for a company like the Kempton Group, you know, again, small family-owned company, that's really kind of our bread and butter is the clients that, that come to us, they are looking for a plan that fits them. Uh, they do not want one size fits all. They're looking for innovation. They're looking for customization. They want a benefit plan that fits their culture. Uh, and so we work with our clients to custom design a benefit plan, of course, within state and federal law, of course, uh, got to stay within those guardrails. But within those guardrails, we try to get as innovative as possible and, and build a plan that reflects what's important to that employer. Talking about those guardrails, um, we didn't really get into it much in our discussion with Dr. Smith, but I've heard him in other uh, uh, venues talk about some of the guardrails that were put on the surgery center mm-hmm. and how, you know, early on it, it was, they were basically trying to put him out of business. You know, the hospitals via their lobbyists were uh, trying to put his, his uh, organization out of business. So what are some of the guardrails that, that 
you come up across, uh, you know, regulations, uh, laws that prevent you from doing things that you think might actually be in the best interest of your client. Are there is there a lot of that going on for uh, third party administrators? Yeah, th- there is. Um, you know, without getting too much into the the web of of different state and federal laws, um, traditionally there was a quite a bit of latitude that was given to self insured employers as far as the way that they were going to design their benefit plan. And if you thought about it, it made some sense because uh, if an employer is going to step in and assume the risk for their employee's benefit plan, then they ought to be given some flexibility in order what they want to, to cover and what they don't want to cover. And if an employee doesn't, you know, if that benefit plan doesn't suit their needs, well, they can go find a job somewhere else. Uh, today, though, my goodness, you know, the alphabet soup of federal and state laws have really changed that. So right now, even the sta- even in the state of Oklahoma, we were dealing with this just this morning, where there's some new legislation coming out of the state of Oklahoma, which kind of paints a broad brush. And it's a benefit mandate um, that requires certain things to be covered in a certain way. And traditionally, that would be a, a self-funded employer. Their benefit plan would be exempt from those types of state benefit mandates. But state of Oklahoma now is starting to apply some of those benefit mandates, not just to the big insurance companies, the big multinational insurance companies, but also now to ABC Wholesale with uh, 120 employees. Interesting. Now, is that is that perceived by you? Well, two questions. Yeah, so I guess the first would be, is that perceived by you to be uh, coming after third-party administrators and maybe the, and businesses who choose to, to self-insure? Or um, were there some businesses out there that were self-insured and, and to be like were irresponsible in the way they went about it? Some of their employees got stuck with medical bills that they were expecting the employer to pick up. And then did, any, did anything like that happen? And maybe this is an overreaction to that? No, I don't think it. Honestly, I don't think that it is that purposeful. I think it's just simply the, the, just the, the, the standard um, overreach of government. Uh, they're they're simply wanting to apply one standard to to all you know to the bigs and to the smalls and to the small employers uh, relatively small employers that are self insured. I think the regulators are just wanting to treat them the same way they would a big insurance company. Hmm. Um, which uh, you know, and back to your comment about you know having employers that are self insured maybe not offering comprehensive benefit plans. In, in my 30 years of doing this, actually my employers that we do business with, with almost, with almost no exceptions, when they have the opportunity to custom design their own benefit plan, their benefit plans are generally more rich than what can be found out there in the open market. It's partially the reason why they've actually decided to go away from insurance and kind of do their own thing. Um, because they, they're wanting to provide benefits, again, that are more rich uh, many times than what's available in the commercial market. So I, I certainly don't see self-insurance as some way to, to uh, reduce the benefits available to their employees. Usually, you know, our clients are in very competitive job markets, and so they want a benefit plan that is as, as rich as possible uh, with, with uh, incentives built in as well when the employee uh, is either healthier or if they do get sick, if they if they choose to avail themselves of, of uh, again, high-value medical providers like the Surgery Center of Oklahoma, like Oklahoma Heart, uh, et cetera, then, then they want those employees to be rewarded. 
I think that's an interesting point because healthcare costs have skyrocketed the last you know two decades or so, and every time someone brings up trying to trim those costs, it seems to always associate well that just means we're going to have worse healthcare, worse outcomes. And a lot of times, it's not the case. It's really just finding out where the inefficiency is and why those costs are going up without actually having to reduce the care. And I bring that up because I wanted to talk to you about your your work with the Free Market Medical Association and how how you came to help found that group with Dr. Smith and some of the work you've done with that and how it's tied into what you're doing here at the Kimpton Group. Yeah, I don't know how long this podcast is, but it could go on for, <laughs> for days about that. But uh, I'll try to keep it a little bit brief uh, for the format of the show. But, um, you know, as we've, as we've talked about an employer, uh, a, a partially self-insured employer, if you, if you think about it, um, when an employer decides to be self-insured, they have kind of stepped into a, a role where they're almost like a pure buyer. Um, because, you know, when their employees get sick and their employees choose to, if an employee needs to have an MRI and that employee chooses or, or gets uh, referred to an MRI center that, you know, charges 4000 bucks for a shoulder MRI, well, that 4000 bucks is not carried by an insurance company. That comes right out of the employer's bottom line. And then when the employer realizes or becomes aware that you can get that same MRI on the other side of town for 500 bucks with possibly better technology with a better radiologist, et cetera, it's 500 bucks, that, that employer's got real sticker shock at that point. It's not going to be something that they're going to have to wait 12 months to their renewal and they get a larger increase from the, from the insurance carrier. That's going to be a dollar that that difference between the four, the five hundred dollar MRI and the four thousand dollar MRI. That's going to impact immediately as soon as the bill comes to the Kempton Group, and we write a four thousand dollar check out of their bank account as opposed to a five hundred dollar check. Yeah, so so the employers got to a point where um, you know if. if if the only option is four thousand bucks for an MRI, well, there's not a whole lot you can do about it. But as soon as you learn that there are other options out there, it becomes they become very consumer driven, and uh, so really that's um, what kind of kicked off the Free Market Medical Association. I understand y'all have Dr. Smith. You know he is a he is a, a very very free market minded seller. Um, my clients are also very free market minded buyers. And so when he and I met, um, you know, after we both put our, you know, our six shooters down and cause we're not supposed to trust each other, uh, <laughs> medical providers and, and TPAs, uh, or like the Hatfields and the McCoys. Um, but once we started talking and understanding what, uh, from what perspective both of us came from, we said, you know, there's, we got to get our people together here. Um, and so uh, employers, we do look at them as buyers on behalf of their employees. And, you know, as buyers, we're always looking for high value sellers. And so, um, uh, you know, a, a single employer that is self-insured is really motivated to, to drive the free market in healthcare, probably unlike any other entity. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it feels like that is really the the issue with healthcare is just people aren't, the buyers aren't trying to inform themselves. They feel like it's too complicated and it's too messy. And to a degree it is. And the sellers themselves have 
no incentive to provide any kind of clarity and transformation to help right. the buyers actually understand what they're paying for. And, you know, there's a lot of focus on the employee, which we spend a lot of time working on the, you know, the, you know, talking to the employee employees is, uh, is calling our company looking for, you know, help in navigating the healthcare system. We try to do a good job with that, but, you know, quite honestly, um, you know, the federal government has spent a lot of time and money, you know, through the advent of, of health savings accounts and, you know, trying to give an employee, a patient, some, some skin in the game. The problem with that is, as, as, as you just alluded, is healthcare costs have gotten larger and larger. You know, if you're looking at having a, a medical procedure done um, and, you know, it's not an emergency, it's something that you may have a little bit of lead time and you're expected it to, you know, to cost 20,000 bucks or more, as an employee, you're not going to even think about that. I, I don't have that kind of money anyway. And so once my deductible has been met, once my out-of-pocket has been met, I don't really care whether the medical provider charges 20 grand for it or 20 million. It's all monopoly money at that point. But to a self-funded employer, that's real money. The difference between a $20,000 hysterectomy and a $70,000 hysterectomy is a big deal to an employer. And so, uh, you know, and the employees are, they just want to get well. They just want to get better as fast as possible. And so that's where um, a, a good TPA or a good employer can step in and provide that knowledge to the employee that, you know, just because a hospital charges 70 grand for or a hysterectomy doesn't necessarily mean that it's, you know, triple uh, the quality of the $20,000 hysterectomy. So tell me if this is too simplistic. And jokes about insurance companies and insurance agents aside, um, whereas it, insurance companies tend to do all of their negotiating after the fact. Right. Uh, it sounds to me like what you're trying to do is negotiate everything before the fact. And not necessarily negotiate with a, a given hospital, but negotiating almost with the, the patient to say, look, I know you got referred to, to this doc over here and the procedure's going to be $20,000, but here's another, you know, a place like the surgery center over here that can do it for 2000 And a lot of times it's the same doctor who's doing it at the, at the Many other. Many times it is, yeah. yeah. Um, and so you're doing everything sort of like, it's almost like preventative as opposed to sort of an at, like a post hoc after the fact kind of deal. You know, it's actually a little more complex than that. Um, insurance, it usually is. I'm a simple yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. With healthcare, yeah, it's nothing's easy. Uh, actually, insurance companies generally do negotiate um, before the fact. Oh, right. Um, as do we. But the big difference is that, that uh, the medical community and the insurance community, um, the way that they negotiate is unlike anything that a sane person would do. Uh, the insurance world, they will negotiate with a medical provider uh, on a percentage reduction off of what the hospital chooses to bill. And if I told you that I was going to sell you my car and you said, well, how much are you going to charge me? And I said, don't worry, it'll be 50% off whatever I choose to sell it for you, to you for. I still have, you still don't know what the car is going to cost, right. right? It's 50% off of an unknown starting point. That is how insurance companies negotiate with medical providers. And you also don't have any ability to compare because 50% off of something that's never happened, that hasn't happened yet, is, is, is useless. There's no information there. 
when we try to negotiate with a medical provider, we say, what is the all-in, all-done price uh, to do an ACL repair? I don't know all the questions to ask. You do, though, as the medical provider. You tell me from soup to nuts, what is the out-the-door cost, including physical therapy, including pre-operative, uh, you know, pre-surgical testing, et cetera. And we get a unitized number, all in, all done. And we put that under a contract. And generally, the medical providers that are willing to do that are the high-value medical providers. They've done enough ACL repairs, for instance, mm -hmm. that they've done thousands of them. They know that when everything goes right, they can do it at this price. They know if things go really wrong, it's going to be this price. And they set a price that kind of takes care of the outliers and then also to you know it kind of gives them that average price and it's generally 50 to 80 percent less than what the big hospital would charge wow that is impressive so what's the biggest hurdle for people seeking out this type of i guess insurance or healthcare payment plans is it people feeling like the system's too complicated and don't want to have to to mess with that or is it more just like the, the size and scale of the company that's seeking to maybe self-insure it's i'll tell you the biggest impediment and that's us okay. not not kempton but mm -hmm. us as americans mm -hmm. uh, i was thinking about this when i was driving down uh to, to sit down with for you with you guys about because i figured you're going to ask a question like that um it's us um and what i mean by that is we are so horrible at the idea of having to discern value in healthcare. We've never been taught that. It's not a cultural norm for us. Um, telling a medical provider, no, I'm not going to have that medical procedure done where you told me to because either you won't give me a price up front or I've, you've given me a price up front and I've shopped the price and you're too doggone high, that scares most Americans to death to even have that conversation. And if you tell an employee that's never been exposed to this, like when we, when we first signed a brand new customer that has never been in a, in a health plan such as ours, they're freaked out. And we're not asking them to do anything that they don't, they probably haven't done 10 times that morning, whether they got gas in their car or they went and got a coffee or whatever else. They right. have already discerned value. They have decided where not to buy. They've decided where to buy. And they've decided what is a, a, what is a price that makes sense to them. And so we're simply saying, you know, hey, if you have got a, a non-emergent voluntary type of medical issue, we're going to give you lots of information for you to help make a choice. We're simply asking you to assist in discerning value and reward the medical provider that is low price, low cost and is has great outcomes and choose not to buy from the high priced mediocre outcome medical provider and it just scares us americans to death and until that changes and we're doing everything we can at the kempton group at surgery center of oklahoma and the free market medical association we're gaining a lot of traction but you know i've, I've seen the enemy and it's us um, when it comes to that and i think that's been that has been i don't want to say trained out of us 
but it's for at least two generations it is not appropriate in most Americans minds to question the medical community Mm. and because of that we have sent a signal to the market that we are not price sensitive that we are not quality sensitive and that we don't have we don't feel like we have any business or any right to question what something costs in healthcare, and so we get what we've got it's like a perfectly inelastic market it really is yeah no matter how the price changes the demand doesn't the demand isn't affected so um you know when dr smith was on he was saying that there is you know he's still kind of operating out on an island <laughs> and I, I don't understand why there aren't more people who are uh doing what he's doing but i, I also i also get that it, it seems to me that to do what he has to to do what he's doing i think you probably have to be physician owned and operated and i don't know if if there's a uh an adverse desire on the part of physicians to also be entrepreneurs because that was something else that, that we talked about um, but it sounds like there's a ton of demand in other parts of the country for for what he's offering and what you're doing. Are you operating in other states besides Oklahoma? We we certainly are. Yeah, we're we're in about 20 states. Really? Yeah, and um, honestly, there's probably more demand and more supply right here in Oklahoma and in, in Texas than there is anywhere else in the country. Um, but it is growing. Um, but I also, you know, have to, to say that it's, it's not just Surgery Center of Oklahoma. Surgery Center of Oklahoma has done it absolutely right because they've, they've been loud and proud about it and they have invited, uh, you know, competition to say, hey, here's where we're at. Here's our shingle. We've hung it out on the front door and let's bring it, you know, um, let's, let's do some open, uh, open knuckle um, competition in healthcare, which is revolutionary, but there are more than you would think. There would be there if I was to name them all right now. There would be names that you certainly would recognize, but they have chosen to stay more in the shadows. They're kind of a, they will compete if asked. <clears throat> but if you say, "Great, can I put your name out on my website and post your pricing?" <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. And generally, the reason that they won't do that, almost universally, the reason that a medical provider will choose not to post pricing or be more open and upfront with their pricing is because they're afraid of retaliation from the insurance companies. Ooh, that's interesting. Because they they don't want to you know want to be seen offering a price to the general public that is better than the supposed negotiated price that was negotiated directly between the insurance company and and many times the negotiated price with the insurance company is not a good price back to my percentage off bill charges they'd basically be showing the emperors wearing no clothes absolutely well said the insurance company that everybody thinks is saving them all this money turns out isn't saving them we could go into it deeper but there there's there's (laughs) some federal legislation that has actually reduced some of the incentives for an insurance company to actually get a good deal Really? Uh, yeah, it's the minimum loss ratio, um, which was a component of the Affordable Care Act, which is the, that's very ironic, the name there. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, if, if you want the pie, if you want to make more money as an insurance carrier, the only way that you can make more money these days is by paying out more in claims. Well, let me ask you a question that I, um, I don't know if there's a good way to answer it or not, but suppose somebody's hearing this and they're on just a regular insurance plan. They're, they're, 
their employer is not partially self-funded or fully self-funded or whatever. And they're hearing this and, you know, maybe this isn't a shock, but, uh, but they heard what you said about they're not willing to sort of, to, to take a look and, and price shop or whatever, because to your point earlier, what difference does it make to them, right? They're, it's not, it's not, quote, if their, their deductible's money. been met, then it's somebody else's money. Right. right. Is there any benefit for that person to go ahead and start the process of actually looking around and doing some price shopping, even though, say, they've met their deductible and they're basically playing with Monopoly money? Um, I mean, the insurance companies probably love that because, to your point, another one of your points, that just makes them more money. But is there any value to, to the consumer to also start doing that? Not unless they're paying for it out of their pocket. Okay. Yeah. If uh, if if they're first off, if if they are playing with the carrier's money, they've already met their deductible and or met their out of pocket max. They really, uh, you know, even if they cut a great deal with the medical provider, the medical provider contractually cannot take any other deal than the deal that was negotiated by the insurance company. Um, if we're talking about the patient's money because the patient hasn't met their deductible or they're just choosing to pay cash. I mean, you don't have to file a claim. Right. You know, we're not at a point where, you know, we have an insurance company's, um, you know, logo tattooed to our arm, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, like in the Holocaust yet, we're not owned by the carriers yet. And so we, they are a product that we can choose to use or not use whenever we want to. Um, and so, to speak to that patient that you were talking about, if if they haven't met their deductible or their coinsurance, or they have a very, very high deductible, absolutely it's worth their time and effort to negotiate the best cash price that they possibly can. Because generally, a patient that's able to pay cash can get a better deal than any insurance company. Mm. Uh, there's generally going to be smaller procedures, though. But, uh, but yeah, the power of cash still does work out there in, in most areas of healthcare. There are some mega large hospitals in, in Texas, for instance, though, that they actually punish cash. Um, their, their cash price is actually their worst price that they would offer to anybody. Hmm. They just do, they're not equipped to take cash. They don't want to take cash. They are so far, literally the customer is the insurance company for some giant hospitals. Right. Not in Oklahoma yet. Despite so. the fact that they probably got an entire floor dedicated to a bunch of claim specialists arguing with insurance companies all day about exactly. what they're going to pay them. Yeah, and they cuss each other all day long, <laughs> but they run their business basically entrenched with the carriers. It's a very symbiotic relationship between big hospital, big healthcare, and big insurance that don't Anytime I hear about, oh, so-and-so hospital and so-and-so insurance company or, oh, they're about to go out of network and everybody's going to be disrupted. I was like, oh, my gosh, you're just a bunch of chumps. If you actually think that that's going to happen, I mean, eventually they will always, and they always do, they always get the band back together and they always find an agreement because it was all for show from the very beginning. And I hope you all know who I'm talking about. <laughs> it's one of your next door neighbors. <laughs> very from that, that, uh, that group. Yeah, it was very dramatic mm -hmm. earlier uh, this year. Very dramatic. And at the last minute, they put a deal together. So has now that there's only essentially one carrier operating in the state of Oklahoma, uh, has that 
has that led in, in your mind to some of the increase in, in people or businesses deciding to become self-funded or partially self-funded? Um, I, I don't know that that's driven it. Um, I think more than anything, it's been um, just the awareness that um, healthcare is broken. Uh, you know, to an entrepreneurial, um, closely held company, uh, what we generally, when, when our phone rings, and a lot of times that's how it happens, we just get a call from an employer that maybe heard a podcast or you know saw a YouTube uh, video or something about what we're doing, and it's almost like they've they finally have been um you know what they've been thinking all along has has now been kind of verified that uh you know, i had a a client years ago um wasn't that long ago we we're actually we're we were doing what we're doing now in kind of in the free market movement and he was across the desk from me and he said you know this is an oil field service company and he said, you know, we buy all kinds of things around here. You know, we buy, you know, um, uh, pipe valves and Ford pickups and, you know, all the things that we buy. They said, we don't buy anything the way we buy healthcare. And I'm over it. I I'm just not going to continue to basically cede to a third party that doesn't have my interest at heart, all pricing authority. I'm not going to give my employees a, a, a company credit card, essentially, to go out there and 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 be snookered into buying the four thousand dollar MRI, I need help. I need help helping me and my employees buy better in this arena of our business, this area of our business. No longer am I going to let healthcare just be hands off. Okay, mm -hmm. one one last question because uh, I'm vaguely familiar with some of these like MediShare programs, which I see is sort of similar to what you're doing, but like on an individual or family basis as opposed to uh, a business. And I've heard that they've had a lot of problems recently paying out shares. And I, I'm, to I'm told that a lot of that is driven by COVID. So how has that affected uh, companies that are, I mean, have they had to dip in more to those uh, uh, backup insurance policies because of just the massive hospital bills that they see from like COVID patients? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we, we've been doing this for a long time and we've seen in, in 2020, thankfully not so much in 2021, but um, late 2020 and early 2021, uh, we've saw the, some of the largest single medical claims <clears throat> that we've ever seen um, in, in 50 years of operation. Uh, we had one particular claim that uh, at, at a, a relatively small employer client of ours, they had a $3.5 million uh, fatality COVID claim that mm. uh, ended up uh, with the, the patient passing away. Um, you know, as far as for that employer, they were out essentially their deductible on their catastrophic reinsurance that they bought uh, and actually did not did not receive a large increase from that insurance company really? uh, on the reinsurance side. Um, you know, most people don't think of it this way, but you know, most insurance companies, they all buy insurance, right? It's all a matter of layering risk. And so, um, this particular reinsurance carrier, uh, they were only on the hook for the first one point. We didn't know this. Mm -hmm. Glad we didn't know this because we don't have a habit of having claims these large, this large, but, um, this particular carrier was on the on the risk for the first 1.5 million. I think the employer was on the hook for the first 30,000, and then the next 1.5 million went to the reinsurance carrier, and then the next 
million went to another reinsurance carrier. And so, I mean, the the reinsurance business is is built for this. All right, right. Um, and uh, you know, it ultimately it's going to cause you know costs to go up. Um, but as far as it being a real you know, jolt to the system of, of any concern it really hasn't been. But if you had a carrier or, or a, a share, a sharing program that did not have some type of, of backstop, it would be, it would be hard to weather. I'm wondering if these share companies that ever consider, I don't know, maybe layering risk, spread risk over a certain threshold a, amongst yeah. themselves. Yeah, I know. That's a great question. I, I hadn't, <clears throat> I hadn't thought about that. Um, that they could, they, I don't know that there's anything that would stop them from going out and buying some insurance of their own, just as a like I think you, I mean, said, it you is, call it essentially a catastrophic policy. And it's not health insurance; it, right. it is business insurance. Um, you know, these reinsurance carriers—it's called reinsurance just, for a reason. They'll yeah. never pay a hospital bill; they only reimburse employers um, for the the cost of of, uh, of these claims. So it, it is just a form of business insurance. Sure. Okay. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on. We appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Yeah, it was fun.